study in the, the book of Ephesians, so you're, you're turning there already, which is good. Um, and over the last several weeks, Paul's really gripped our hearts. The Apostle Paul's gripped our hearts in these opening verses of, of Ephesians. Um, as, he, as he picks up his pen to write, he can't help but express his white-hot praise to God. I mean, that's really what we see in this opening chapter. He starts by saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's, he's praising God. And really in this first 14 verses or so, we, we really see what fuels his praise. Paul knows that we are, are the least deserving of God's favor, and yet we've been given absolutely all of God's favor in Christ. Okay? He understands that. We're the least deserving of God's favor, yet we've been given absolutely all of His favor in Christ. To put it in Paul's terms, in verse 3, we've been given every spiritual blessing. So, that's what we've been calling our, our first little mini-series here in this, in this book of Ephesians. Every spiritual blessing. We've been given everything we need in, in the Lord Jesus. And in the first message, a couple weeks ago, we took our time to explore exactly what Paul meant when he told us that we've been given all of these blessings, uh, that we've been given everything we possibly need. And this is of the entire section of this, this, these first 14 verses. And in what follows, Paul gives us an aerial view of these blessings. So we've said this in each message, but it's like Paul takes us up into, into a lighthouse and to the observation deck, when, and we're able to sort of survey the entire island here of what God has done for us in Christ, our redemption, our salvation, all in this first chapter. And we see, we see everything in its, in its entirety, in its beauty, and uh, it's, it's overwhelming. And again, Paul's intent is, is for us to live lives that are, are fueled by worship and praise as well to this triune God. So that was our first message. In the second message, which was last week, we saw why we've been blessed. Why we've been blessed. And that's because God chose us. He chose us. He assigned a destiny to us before He ever created the world. When we believe the gospel, it was because God first chose us to believe the gospel. And this was, this was our initial view uh, from the observation deck, if you will. Why we begin every spiritual blessing? Because God chose us to receive it. And today, Paul's going to circle east, if you will, on that deck. And he's going to give us another stunning view. So not only did God choose us, that's true. Not only did he assign our destiny beforehand, but he provided all the necessary elements to make it a reality for us. So he chose us, he planned it, he was the architect behind our salvation, and then he made it happen. He affected it. He provided all the necessary elements to make it a reality. And really what God wants from you and I in, in this, these verses is to see how sufficiently his provision is for us. How sufficient put it that way, his, his provision is for us in Christ. Paul knows that this is the bedrock of the Christian life. If we get this wrong, then we're going to get everything else wrong. Our lives are going to be a mess. But if we get this right, our lives are going to grow in transformation. So that's what we're going to look at today, is, is what we'll call the provision that God has made for us in His Son. So if you want to think about last week, was chosen by the Father. This is provision 
in the Son. Provision in the Son. And I've broken this passage down into uh, really three specific provisions. Three specific provisions that God gives to us in Christ, provides for us. A little redundant, but you, you get the drift. So let's, before we jump into these, these provisions, let's just read the, read the passage, beginning in uh, verse 7. In Him, that is, in the Beloved, in the last verse, that's a reference to Christ, in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. So this, these are, in this text, I think we find three specific provisions for, um, from God to us in Christ. And really this first provision that we encounter at the very beginning in verse 7 is what we'll call costly redemption. Costly redemption. The very first thing that God's provided is redemption, and that's at, at a great cost to himself. It's through the death of his own beloved. In verse 7, he says, In him we have redemption through his blood. We have redemption through his blood in Christ. So, we need to unpack this idea of redemption a bit as we get going here, so we can understand really what, what Paul's getting at. I want us to feel the weight of this little phrase. So let's explore a little bit more on what Paul means by redemption. When we typically hear this word, uh, redeem, we, we really don't go to where the Bible goes. At least I don't. We, I think of a coupon code, right? That's a little trite in terms of <laughs> where we've been traversing. But uh, I don't think about people necessarily being redeemed, unless I'm in the church and that's our common lingo. But when a person is redeemed in Scripture, it means they're set free. And typically, they're set free from slavery. That's the idea. And it's always through outside help, some form of outside help. They're unable to set themselves free, and so someone from the outside helps them. And in the Bible, at least in the Old Testament, the most central redemption event in the Old Testament was, was the exodus from Egypt. You know the story well. God's chosen people were enslaved to Pharaoh. They were under severe oppression. They were unable to help themselves. Listen to what God says in, in Exodus 6.6 6 about this redemption idea. He says, I am Yahweh. I will bring you out from the power of the Egyptians. Then I will rescue you from slavery and I will, here's our word, redeem you with an outstretched arm. And great judgments. So we hear all, all those aspects that we just talked about. Bring you out from the power of the Egyptians. They're under foreign oppression. Rescued from slavery. Again, same idea. And redemption with an outstretched arm. They're brought back through judgment. So the Lord becomes their redeemer. And they escape his judgment. And they experience redemption through the blood of the lamb. Smeared on the doorposts. Egypt did not escape the judgment. 
uh, both in their firstborn child and then in their, later in the Red Sea. And this exodus-like redemption language becomes a common way to describe God's deliverance to his people, even in the Old Testament. So David spoke of God redeeming him when he was helpless. And then if you fast forward to the Israelites' captivity, when they were in, uh, under Babylonian rule, the, the prophets spoke of their deliverance as a second exodus. So they used the same language as a second redemption. And these prophets also looked forward to a day when, when final and complete redemption would take place for God's people. This redemption would include redemption from sin and redemption from all foreign oppression. And if we say it positively, it would involve all the people being made completely holy and empowered to then rule over their enemies. That's the idea of, of redemption in this language. As you see, this exodus becomes the paradigm, and then the later biblical authors will use that paradigm over and over again. And what's absolutely amazing about what Paul says here in our text is that we have or we possess this redemption, the redemption, the greatest redemption spoken of by the prophets. We've been bought back from the slave market, not just of Pharaoh, not just of foreign oppression, but of sin itself, of Satan himself, who is the agent and the, the motivator of all the kings of the earth. We've been bought back from sin, been redeemed, released from the enslaving power of our transgressions, from the bondage of the satanic worldly system. We've been set free from all of that. According to this passage, we've been redeemed by our great God. And as we explore this letter to the Ephesians, we're going to see there's a future element coming to this redemption. So we've experienced, we've experienced it in part. It all belongs to us. We will inherit it. But there's a future redemption coming, a complete redemption. In Romans, Paul talks about the redemption of our bodies. He's just talking about the resurrection from the dead. We're going to be released from the entirety of God's curse from, from Genesis 3, all the way back there, which was death. The resurrection will be the final redemption. And earth will also experience this redemption. So it's got a cosmic element to it. But we'll get to this more in just a, a minute. The point I'm making right now is that this redemption is ours in Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is saying. And he goes on to tell us how this redemption, how we were bought back. How did it take place? Paul says it, it took place through his blood. Through the blood of Christ, through the death of Jesus. So that means our redemption was not cheap. This is God's slaughtered, beloved son. Okay? Just, a, just in, the very, in the previous verse, look at how he's described. Verse 6, the end of verse 6. With which he has blessed us in the beloved. That's a statement about Jesus. So this is the chosen, beloved son of God. And yet... He was given up to be slaughtered for our redemption. It was costly, in other words. And that's where I'm getting that language on our outline. And this little phrase, uh, his blood, is Paul's shorthand. You know, you take notes in class. Can't write it all down. You take shorthand. This is Paul's shorthand way of saying the atoning death of Jesus, his blood. 
The death of Jesus provides real satisfaction of God's wrath toward you for all of your sin and rebellion. Real satisfaction. Not pretend satisfaction, not just to make us feel better about ourselves, but real, actual satisfaction of God's real, actual wrath toward you for your sin and rebellion. And by dying, he absorbed all of God's wrath toward you, like a sponge. He drank it all, and and not one drip remains for you to experience if you're in Christ. That means that every click of porn, every anxious thought, every murderous outburst of anger, every twisted lie you've told, every careless word of gossip, every proud and self-exalting thought, every instance of lack of love in your heart, every ounce of your total depravity that only earned you the full fury of God, Christ willingly took it all for you. He didn't give up. He didn't tap out. He took it blow by blow to buy you back from slavery. That's what it means to be redeemed by His blood. And our only response in this moment is, Hallelujah, what a Savior, right? What a King. And so that's the first provision we have in Christ. We have costly redemption. He has obtained it for us. He's earned it for us. It's all He did it all. I mean, there's no me in that equation. And if that's not enough, Paul goes on. He, he, communic- he continues to describe our redemption... But he uses another phrase. So I'm just going to turn this into a second provision that we've been given in Christ. And I'm I'm calling this second one lavish forgiveness. Lavish forgiveness. Look in the last half of verse 7. We'll go ahead and read the whole verse. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. So this is lavish forgiveness. And it's our second provision. <clears throat> and this forgiveness is consistent with the, with the wealth of God's gracious character. That's what it means to be according to the riches of His grace. It's forgiveness that's it's in keeping with His gracious character. So this is, this is really lavish, uh, grace-filled forgiveness. And what I don't want you to miss is just like the prophets spoke about a day when God would provide a final redemption... They also said this day would include a final comprehensive forgiveness. Okay? People were forgiven in the Old Testament, but there was a day coming when all of the people that belonged to the New Covenant would be completely and finally forgiven. The prophets spoke about this in a number of places, but in, in Jeremiah 31, you can write that down. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34, uh, Jeremiah describes this day in a, in a number of ways. <clears throat> And just for sake of time, we're not going to go there, but at the, at the end of the passage, he talks about forgiveness. The forgiveness of sins is going to be the hallmark of the New Covenant. It's going to be what the New Covenant is characterized by. It's the state of forgiveness that is going to be obtained by God. He's going to write the law in the hearts of, of human beings. It's going to be a New Covenant, different from the Old Covenant. Everybody's going to personally know the Lord, and forgiveness is going to reign. And so again, Paul is saying we've received this new covenant benefit of complete and total forgiveness in Christ. 
There's a, a covenantal shift has taken place. We're in Christ now, in the new covenant, which is characterized by a state of forgiveness of sins. And that brings us to another question. Well, what is this forgiveness? It's the cancellation of actual debt. It's the cancellation of actual debt. That's what it means to be forgiven. Debt is canceled. So if you took out a loan for your car or for school, then you've incurred debt. And if the bank called and said, You're for, we've forgiven your debt, then the bank just canceled it, right? Well, somebody has to eat that deficit. So the bank ate it in that case. The bank could act the next day and say, we've changed our minds, you're back in debt. So once a debt is canceled legally, it's canceled in our system. And there's the same idea is present here. Once we've entered into this state of forgiveness in the new covenant, we are forgiven. Our sin is very real moral debt against God. And it's not innocent. It's not neutral. It's morally deadly. It's debt that will incriminate us to hell eternally. But this forgiveness that Paul talks about, the the, the forgiveness of sins, is a God-granted cancellation of your moral debt. And he can let the guilty go free because he's already punished Jesus. Right? You can see how it dovetails so well with the redemption through his blood. God can freely forgive and yet still be just because of his Son. What his son has accomplished. That means he didn't turn a blind eye to your sin. I had an uncle that said he's just gonna, God's just going to sprinkle fairy dust, literally, fairy dust on people to make them holy in the end. That God didn't abuse his son. You know, The atonement's not vicarious. We had a long conversation about that several years ago. And that's not what happened. That's not what's going to happen. The reason... He forgives your sin and can do that justly is because he didn't turn a blind eye to it. He didn't sweep it under the rug, but he meted out the judgment that you deserve to Christ. But the backside of this is this means forgiveness is full and free. There's no conditions, no fine print. He forgives every sin. Every one of them. He forgives your condition of sin. Every sin you've ever committed, every sin you commit today, every sin you will ever commit in the future, every failure to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, every idol, every act of rebellion, every evil thought, forgiven in Christ. And in case we're tempted to doubt the extent of this forgiveness, Paul tells us that it's in accordance with the riches of his grace. It's in accordance with the riches of his grace. What does he mean by that? Well, it's in continuity. You could put it that way. It's in continuity with the grace of God, the gracious character of God. And now, by the way, that's rich. Okay, so there's, there's a wealth of that. And the way he's forgiving you is in accordance with that. It's in line with that. It's in harmony with his gracious character. This is at the very heart of God to lavish us in this scandalous way. And in fact, in 
in the kingdom and in where we're, where we're headed, this is, is what God is going to do for us. He says that so that in chapter 2, verse 7, he talks about why we've been saved, so that in the coming ages, what's coming, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. How? In kindness toward us in Christ Jesus, or by being kind to us eternally in Christ. That's how he displays how gracious he is. And we're going to see, we're going to explore the depth of our depravity in chapter 2, which is is going to make this pop for us. And we're going to really see how significant this is. But for now, just think through this with me. Are, Are you hiding sin today? Sin that you think is too great to bring to the light. In confession, well, there's good news for you from the Father. He already knows, and there's bottomless grace to cover it. It's in accordance with His gracious character. There's no bottom to this grace. So that means when He gives grace to the vilest offender, like the hymn says, it doesn't doesn't withdraw anything. It's not like God has less grace now as a result of that. It's bottomless. It's eternal. Uh, It's never-ending. Enough for every transgression. So step into the light. Bring it out. Bring it to your leaders. Bring it to your pastors so that you can experience forgiveness and help. Or maybe you experience perpetual guilt for past sin. Or nagging doubts as to whether or not God has actually forgiven you. Have you done enough for God's mercy? Well, there's good news for you in this passage that God has already provided all that you need to cover it. To cancel it. And now it's your choice to either continue to self-atone and try to add more to what Christ has already done by your guilt and by any other ways that you're trying to expiate that guilt in your life, or you can choose by faith to believe what this text says and rest in this. He desires you to experience the the peace and the joy that come from uh, really knowing that your debts have been canceled completely and finally. And this truth is critical for us to understand. It's critical for us to, to, to lay hold of and trust. Because like we said earlier, getting this right means the rest of our lives, we get that right. Okay. This, lays, this experience of His mercy lays the foundation for our forgiveness of others and our love for others. Flip over to chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 32, he's, he's describing the new life that we have in Christ and really the responsibilities that we have in Him, the new transformation that God wants to work in us. And in verse 32, notice what he says. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And what? Walk in love. Live your lives in love. How? As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Do you see how those two, those two elements, which is forgiving others lavishly and sacrificing yourself for the needs of others, parallel these first two points? Do you see that? The sacrifice of yourself for the good of another, that's what love means. 
And you're, you're going to do that to the extent that you understand what Christ has done for you. And no more. And that's an important little phrase. You won't love people any more than you understand that you've been loved by God. And you won't forgive people unless you understand how you have been forgiven by God. So there's, there's no... It undercuts any basis for, you know, trying to get your pound of flesh from any person on this earth because of what God in Christ has done for you. So this lays the foundation for our life of forgiveness and our life of sacrificial love. To the extent we understand this is, is the extent that we'll love. And that's a good barometer, how we can... We can measure our love. Our love for others reveals what we actually believe about how God's treated us. So that's the second provision that we've been given by God in Christ. Lavish forgiveness. And it dovetails beautifully with this first provision, this costly redemption. So now Paul explains our our third and final provision, uh, which I'm calling revelatory insight. What? Uh, that's kind of weird. Why, do you, why are you putting it like that? Revelatory insight. Well, I'll explain. So not only did in his, God in His grace provide our redemption and provide our forgiveness, but get this, He also gave us the ability to understand these things. The ability for the lights to come on in our hearts and minds to actually grasp this as truth. The ability to come to know His plan in Christ. He gave us insight into His revelation. That's what I mean by revelatory insight. He gave us insight into His revelation, into His plan. It's like He brought us close and He told us about His eternal plan for the universe. How He's going to make everything right again through Jesus. And He gave us the ability to get it. That's the idea of what we're going to find in these next few verses. And that's the essence of this third provision, which we're calling revelatory insight, which just just means that insight comes by God revealing truth to us. And uh, disclaimer, I have four minutes left, but I'll probably take ten, right, like normal. I was thinking about this point. I know I'm wasting time here, but... You know when you go to Chipotle and uh, you order your burrito and you got two people that are working there and then the cashier and the first person, man, they're just loading you up. They're like, you know, white or brown. No, 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 no. They send all that stuff and this is just pile on your burrito and you're thinking, man, how's she gonna, how's she gonna wrap this thing up? And then she goes, shh, next. And then you look at that second person and then they're the ones that actually are gonna have to wrap this burrito up, you know, and they're like. And there's that brief moment of uncertainty. Like, how am I going to get this thing wrapped up? And uh, that's exactly how I feel with this point. I feel like that second, that second worker. Like, okay, Paul, you just loaded me up here. How am I going to wrap this thing up so that we don't get messy? Uh, second burrito, yeah. Fork and paper towels and napkins, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> there's a lot to this point, obviously, and it... Uh, we're calling it revelatory insight. So I'm just going to try to wrap it up for you in a couple of really just two summary statements. Revelatory insight. Let me, let me try to unpack this quickly. Paul says here that God graciously gave us insight to enable us to understand his revelation. 
Okay? Paul graciously gave us insight to enable us to understand his revelation. Look in verse 8. He says, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Okay? So he's saying God gave us a package deal of grace, and that was lavished. And in that deal, in that package of grace, was also wisdom and insight. Does that make sense? All right, look up at me. I know you're trying to write this down, but we don't have time. Okay? I'll send it to you. There's a package... And it's the package of God's grace. And inside that package is wisdom and insight to understand God. That's part of the deal. Okay? That's what he's given us. That's what this verse means. A lot of implications to that, but it humbles us, doesn't it? Main implications, it humbles us. We would not understand were it not for God's grace. Okay? You wouldn't get it. You're not smarter than the, the other person. The only reason you chose Christ is because he gave you wisdom to do it. All right, so that's number one. God graciously gave us insight, his insight, to enable us to understand his revelation. The, the things we just talked about, the redemption and the, the forgiveness. And, and in particular, God has revealed to us his mysterious plan for the universe. Okay? Everything he's going to do in Jesus. That's the plan. And he's revealed that to us and he's given us the wisdom to get it. All right? That's the idea. Again, I'll send it to you. And Paul describes this plan really quickly. Again, trying to wrap it up. This stuff's squirting out the sides. I feel it. Okay? All right, I want to take you through very quickly what all he says about this plan, all right? Okay, specifics of the mysterious plan. Number one, his plan was once a mystery. He says that God is making known to us the mystery of his will. So that means that in times past, exactly how God was going to work out his purposes to restore the universe, it wasn't clearly revealed. Okay, again, don't write it down. I'll send it to you. But now Paul says that he's made it known to us. He's revealed the secret, and now we know and can proclaim it. All right, his plan was once a mystery. His plan is in harmony with his good pleasure. It's in harmony with his nature, okay? So it says, according to his good pleasure, or according to his purpose, but good pleasure is really the, the best translation of that. His plan's in harmony with this, with this good pleasure. His plan and its outworking are deeply and profoundly pleased the Lord. He loves it. He loves his plan, okay? It makes him happy. It's his plan A, and there are no backups or contingencies. And that's because this third point here is his plan is eternal, and it's always centered in Christ. That means, you know, he says here, which he purposed, which God purposed beforehand in him. Okay, that means his plan, this, this mystery is eternal, and it's centered in Jesus. He devised this plan to be centered in his son beforehand. That means before the world ever began. All right, number four, flying here. His plan is fulfilled at precisely the right moment in history. He says it's, it's a plan, or he says this mystery is unto a plan for the fullness of time. It means that Christ came at exactly the right moment in history, and he's going to return in the fullness of the times when the harvest is fully ripened and ready. And so at this point, we're saying, okay, that's great, Paul, but what's the plan? Okay, you haven't told us really what the plan is. 
He's just told us about the plan. He's described the plan. But he's saving the best for last, okay? And this statement, where he says here, is the climax of this section. It's one of the key themes in the whole book of Ephesians. And he says, this plan involves bringing about absolutely everything in the universe together again under the kingship of Jesus. Okay? He says, to bring together all things in Christ, all things in heaven and on earth, in Him. In Him. So the plan, here he describes it, gives us the content. It involves bringing absolutely everything in the universe together again underneath the kingship and lordship of Jesus. In other words, Christ not only provides redemption for us, but he provides the redemption of the entire universe. Not universalism, but the redemption of the entire universe. The restoration of the universe to the way that things should be and were intended to be from the beginning, including everything in the spiritual realm underneath his lordship. We're going to be looking at that in the weeks to come. Because that is huge and dripping with implications for our confidence in the Christian life, okay? That's our king, right? Our cosmic king. But for now, I want you to realize the privilege of all this. You and I have been given access, this point, access, revelatory insight, VIP access, behind-the-scenes access. We know ultimate realities, about the universe because God has revealed them to us, meaning ultimate realities about what He's doing. We know where everything is headed. We know who's really in charge of this place, and we belong to Him. He's for. I mean, these are these are staggering realities. And even even as I say this, do you feel the weight of this kind of stewardship? The glorious privilege of of receiving wisdom. You and I, if you're a believer, you've been swept up in all this. You're right in the middle of it with Jesus. You've been seated with Him in the heavenly places. And why? Why have you been swept up in this? Well, to be further used by God to broadcast this revelation to others. It's not a secret mystery anymore. It's wide open. Look at the end of this letter in in chapter 6. Quick. Okay. Chapter 6. In verse 19, Paul asks the church to pray for him. Why? He says, So that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. That's the same thing we're talking about. The mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. So that I may declare it boldly, catch this, as I ought to speak. Paul connects the dots. He's been swept up into this revelation to broadcast it, right? To be changed by it, to reflect Christ in the world and to live it out, to broadcast it with his mouth to other people made in the image of God who are destined to receive or who are, who are headed on the path for hell. And God intends this mysterious plan to be revealed, to be proclaimed to all the creatures of this earth and he intends to use us to do it. That's an incredible stewardship. And it's all because we've, we've gotten revelatory insight from God, not from ourselves. 
And so these are, these are just some of the benefits, guys. These are sp- three specific provisions in the sun. We've covered a lot of ground, but don't miss the big picture for the details. This is Paul's goal. He wants you to see how sufficiently he has provided for you and his son. Oh, got a walkie-talkie going up here. Sorry. I don't know if any of you heard that except me. Uh, walkie-talkie was going. If you're a believer today, all right, if you're a believer, he has provided for your redemption at a great cost. Learn about that, point one. You're free from sin and Satan. You now belong to God, your Redeemer. We've also learned that he's provided your forgiveness with lavish grace. There's no outstanding sin balance. All has been forgiven out of the wealth of God's grace. And finally, he's provided even your ability to understand all of this and to be transformed by it. This has massive implications, and Paul's not going to leave us hanging. Chapter 4 through 6 works out all his implications. Okay? So just let this simmer on the front burner for you uh, and seep into your soul these truths. And if you have questions about them, please let me know. Let's pray.